Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. On this episode, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Rainmaker Information Director of Research, Alex Dunnan. Now, Alex, I've heard you start many of our conversations with UESGers, but let's be honest. With most leading super funds keeping a close eye on environmental, social, and corporate governance factors, aren't we all ESGers now? Let's talk about it. Look, we are all ESGers, and uh, thank you for having me, and uh, hi, listeners, and uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, look, we are all ESGers, um, but what really sort of gets my goat a little bit, which is why I refer to USG is, is I've got this sort of hang up. Simple things should be kept simple. And we've got to really be careful that we don't drink our own Kool-Aid. And it's more the complexity that has grown up around ESG, which can make it so complex. I mean, I'm an absolute fan of what the sector is trying to do. And how could you not be trying to reduce pollution, mitigate the impacts of climate change and become a really just a good corporate citizen and a, and a good person and, and get harnessed the, the beast that is superannuation and investment money to do good, powerful, constructive things? How could you not support that? However, uh, the sector does have a bit of a knack of trying to lecture people and it does sort of get a little bit too ideological and it starts to believe its own publicity. And when, when it starts doing that, you, you kind of think, man, we, we need to simplify things and, and it's getting just too technical. And I'll go to some ESG presentations and I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I can use a chainsaw. I can reverse a trailer. Uh, you know, I've got a pure <laughs> mathematics degree. I can read and write. <laughs> and sometimes I listen to these these presentations and I have absolutely no idea what people are talking about. And when I go and debrief with other people about some of these same shows, they'll say the same thing to me, but they just don't seem to quite have it in them to, to challenge some of these technocratic ESG people and say, can you please simplify what you said? Say it in lay people layperson's language and try and actually say what you mean in such a way that a human being can understand what they're saying. And I think sometimes in the ESG space, I think we're losing a little bit of that. We're a little bit caught up with the being too technical. So how do we talk about it here at Rainmaker? And how do we make this case to um, our friends in the superannuation industry and the finance industry and ultimately to members that ESG is a thing that should be considered in an investment process? Well, the first thing to do, I think, to get a sense of where you're coming from. Now, in lots of ways, it doesn't really matter what us as a research group thinks of ESG. It definitely doesn't matter what I think of it as a research person. And that's because I've always taken the view that our job is to try and explain how the industry works to people in it and people who are using that industry. It's not our job to take an ideological position on anything. Uh, I used to be a school teacher, so I'll often say to people, I have school teacher disease called explainer disease. We're always just trying to make sense of things and demystify them and explain them to other people. And that's what we've been doing at Rainmaker ever since I joined, oh my goodness, 25 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and the ESG space is kind of like a godsend for us because it's so unnecessarily complicated. It's it desperately needs a little bit of a simple explanation. And so it's really quite fascinating that when you start to think about what ESG is, it's really hard to refute it. Um, mm -hmm. And so you kind of wonder, well, what's the big deal about it? Uh, it kind of almost sells itself. You don't need anyone to advocate for it. But what we try and do is just try and explain when people talk about ESG, what on earth are they talking about? Why does it matter? Uh, well, if you talk about the E versus the S versus the G, how many times have we had conversations with ourselves where we have a full-on Donnybrook 
almost a stand-up fight over what the S means. And is this ESG <laughs> program more S than G versus E? And when you get into that, you kind of think, oh, my goodness, please don't talk like that. You make us all sound like idiots. And that's when we lose the politics. And when you lose the politics, you do lose the grand fight. And if you actually have a really pragmatic conversation about being a good corporate citizen, harnessing capital as a constructive force, and it's subjective whether it's a force for good or a force for bad or whatever, you know, lots of ways I don't care about those debates because they just don't resonate with real people. Um, but just trying to describe what we can do with the, the capital market system to really do some great long-run investments, you end up having a fantastic conversation, even with people that you ideologically disagree with vehemently, but you all start to realise how we can invest in really creative projects, how they work, why they may not work, what different people are doing. And then you end up just having a really functional conversation and you realise that you don't need to agree with everyone you talk to. Here, here. I, I will date myself a bit, Alex, and say that I often refer to sort of the worst instincts in the sector as the Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea. That's a <laughs> Monty Python reference, people. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the things I love about the way that you've broken this down on the on the research side of Rainmaker Information, Alex, um, is through the methodology and then the ESG leaders that you've identified subsequently to it. So just briefly for our listeners, Alex, can you sort of give the highlights of what makes an ESG leader in Rainmaker's perspective? Well, I'm going to go back even further than that, Rachel. Uh, when we started looking at superannuation many, many, many decades ago, uh, we always took the view that we were just trying to explain how to make sense of it and how to talk to mainstream media, the political class, you know, people we see barbecues and sporting fields, whatever. And, uh, and over the years, this new thing called sustainable investments, ethical investments that led into this ESG ecosystem, whatever you want to call it, sort of evolved. and. We started to realize that um, we didn't really quite know what it was. Hmm. You kind of know when funds are doing it, but then that if someone said, now articulate what that actually is, we would kind of get lost. And then we came across some ratings of some, some ethical ratings. I won't name the group doing it. Um, I don't want to, you know, get into a fight with them. But what really uh, caught my attention when we saw these ethical ratings was there was a couple of funds there that were getting really high accolades, and yet some of these funds had only been around like six weeks, six months in some cases. They had no track record. Uh, mm. And I was really bedazzled how they could get a fantastic ethical rating. But some of what I would call the super heavyweights of the ESG space who have been doing the heavy lifting for decades, not just leading the charge, but leading change management, leading the change in thinking. And really, they pioneered the sector in this country over decades. And mm. they didn't, it's not that they got a bad rating. They didn't even make the short list. They weren't even on the page. And it really stunned me. And it made me realize that, well, we need to, Rainmaker really needs to get in here, roll our sleeves up and try and figure out what is this ESG space and how can we start to talk about it in a way that I think is fair? Because one of the things mm. we do try and do is if if funds or anyone in the investment and superannuation industry is doing something constructive, let's, let's try and figure out what that is and let's help them tell that story. Let's celebrate it um, because mm. we want to try and figure out what are the cool people doing so others like me who aren't so cool, we can kind of mimic it and start doing the same thing. 
And that got us into the idea of, well, what is it that funds are doing when they do this? And mm. funnily enough, in, in doing that, we came up with a little bit of a framework. And this mm. might sound a little bit, you know, cliched, but ESG is nothing if it's not about transparency. So we kind of find it really fascinating that when funds are talking about their sustainable positions and, and whatever, but they wouldn't tell you what they invested in. They wouldn't mm -hmm. tell you how they did the process. They wouldn't tell you the returns even. Uh, they wouldn't tell you anything. So, well, hang on. If you're going to talk about your ESG credentials, but you're going to do it behind a cloak of secrecy, well, thanks for playing. Next, please. Uh, you, you're mm -hmm. not serious. Uh, you then come along into, well, so the first first cab off the rank if you're into ESG and sustainable and ethical investing is you're really open about what you do, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, being open means that you're going to be attacked. And some of us have been in the industry for a long time and and you kind of know that some of those old heads, they also know that if you're going to take strong positions on anything from a policy point of view, let alone from an ESG point of view, you are going to be attacked by your critics. But in ESG, you're going to be attacked a lot more but the main reason you're being attacked is because you're telling people what you do. So it almost mm -hmm. it always intrigues me that some of the activist groups, and I really love some of these new activist groups because the more new voices come into superannuation, the better. And diversity of opinion is 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 terrific because it forces the others and you know people such as myself to get better at explaining and also realize that when you're kind of being attacked, well, you might maybe you're being attacked because you've articulated something really important. But in having that conversation, you actually wind up in a better place because, one, you realize maybe what you need to do better. And you also realize what people are interested in. And um, not all robust questions, not all robust questions are an attack either is important for all of us to remember. Oh, abso this, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I think uh, sometimes in, in finance, people in finance by and large are really good at running money Sometimes mm -hmm. they get better results than other and other times, but that's their skill. They've got that's their secret sauce. That's their kung fu, mm. and mm. and you know, and thank God they've got that ability. Mm. Um, but they're also not very good at politics. And I'm not talking about mm -hmm. nasty partisan politics. I'm talking about persuading people. And you can kind of see this that um, there are some advocates in this industry who are just very good at explaining what they're doing, um, and. If you're going to start talking about investment philosophies, again, sustainability, ESG, and, and everything in between, mm -hmm. uh, you've got to be very good at just explaining, persuading. Mm -hmm. And if you're used to running money and used to making command decisions, you're probably not very good at persuading. And mm -hmm. so you kind of see some of the weak spots. And therefore, if if a if an investment manager or a pension fund trustee is getting it critiqued or even attacked, they might take it personally, and they often do not quite know how to respond to it. Um, but I also think you need to um, think about the old Oscar Wilde truism. You know, the only thing worse than uh, being talked about is not being talked about. And if you are being <laughs> criticised because of something you've done, well, it means you're leading the debate and you can actually mm. be at the front of it, at the pointy end of it, and then people are going to start reacting to you. And the smarter mm. ESG people realising have realised it's about change management. So you then pick up the idea of, okay, you've got to be transparent. You've got to be really open about your processes. Mm. So therefore, you've got to be real, putting a lot of effort into explaining these processes. And this might mm. sound a little bit esoteric, and, and it is, but how does an inanimate thing like a super fund explain these subtleties like investment processes, da-da-da-da-da, which also means they've got to start publishing information. 
and then you've got to articulate what your process is. And you might even have to have the courage to say, this is what I believe in. I've signed mm -hmm. up to these groups. I, I take a strong position on the sustainable development goals or whatever it is. Mm. But at the end of the day, all this doesn't matter a jot if you don't get decent investment returns. And so mm -hmm. we find that the way we talk about ESG and performance in Australia, I personally think is light years ahead of what happens in other jurisdictions because we've got this really strong position, thankfully through the sole purpose test, which makes it a lot easier, is that if you can invest your money in such a way as you're doing constructive things, positive things, good long-run risk management things, which is what ESG is all about anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've got to be able to get decent investment returns because when people retire, they're going to need money in their account. And there's no point having a great sustainable investment strategy if it actually means that I'm going to wind up with almost no money in my retirement account because it's, my fund might have the best ideological position in the world regarding climate action, but when you get down to it, they're really bad at running money. Well, when that happens, it sort of blows the whole thing up. But when you can bring it all together, mm. ESG, smartly run super funds, good investment outcomes, low fees, really efficient. It's just such a magical cocktail that you can see why it's so compelling. I know I've been all around mm. in circles there, but you sort of know the point I'm trying to make. Sure thing. Now, later in our conversation, Alex, I'm going to ask you to touch the controversial topic of your future, your super, and a special exemption for ESG investing. But before we get there, I did want to ask you about this issue of transparency. Um, we're now in, we now live in a bold new era where super funds are uh, required by regulation to disclose a lot more of their underlying holdings without getting too much into the weeds of it. How are super funds doing when it comes to disclosing where holdings are, where they're invested and sort of what the strategy is? Look, by, by and large, I think super funds have done an amazing job. Uh, if you kind of step back a little bit and think that, I mean, just imagine if you and me were running, I'll just say a mid-sized super fund, a couple of billion mm -hmm. dollars, which the, mm -hmm. the fact that we can say that's a mid-sized super fund with a couple of billion dollars with a B, that's, that shows you how amazing <laughs> this industry has become. But first of all, we should be telling people what we, what kind of investments we're buying with their their assets, they're buying with their contributions. And so it, it, it almost goes without saying that super funds should be really open about what they're investing in at almost any level of detail that the member wishes. Uh, but to do that is administratively really, really difficult. Mm. And a good example is, I mean, just say you and me are running Australian super, we might be using five or six different fund managers running our Australian equity portfolio. And then we've got to try and decom or through our consultants and custodian, we've then got to uh, decompose all the cross investments and try and figure out, well, how many, how many, how much money do I really have in BHP? How much money do mm -hmm. I really have in Tesla? How many Australian government bonds do I really own? And it's actually a, a remarkably complex uh, piece of data work to, to be able to provide that information. So the fact that funds have done this at all with an incredibly short turnaround, and let's be let's be realistic, was November 2020, no, November 2021, this legislation mm -hmm. came through. And even though we've been talking about it for the best part of a decade, through through the magic of political happenstance, it just suddenly got passed really quickly. And then straight away the super fund industry was told that you've got three months to make this happen. Now mm -hmm. Thankfully for a lot of the super funds, the regulators don't really seem to care about this disclosure, so they're not punishing too many funds. 
But mm. I think funds have done an outstanding job and some funds have done it really, really well. I've got to say, I've been super impressed by the way some of the retail funds have, have done this. I mean, I've got to mm. really tip my hat to groups such as BT, AMP, uh, CFS. They've been outstanding, I would think. And mm. what's really caught me there is, you know, those large retail groups are nothing if they're not a technology shop. So they've kind of probably got a bit of an advantage. And some of the not-for-profit funds, they're doing it really nicely. I think any fund that's doing it is doing it pretty well. There are a couple of funds who I I don't think quite understand the law. Some of those are the smaller funds, but they have had a crack. Some of those funds are being merged away, so I'm not going to lose too much sleep over them because they're going to cease to exist soon anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but providing this information is really, really difficult. And so some of the funds, ironically, were criticised by some mainstream media personal finance journals because they just provided data sets or spreadsheets and some of those data sets were quite complicated and how would a consumer make sense of this? And they're totally reasonable criticisms, but the fact that they provided this information so quickly, I think is a real outstanding achievement, which I think funds should be given a lot of credit for. And they're also not sure what the regulator wants from them, but I also think the regulator has no idea what the super funds are meant to be saying. The way the legislation was written was a little bit naive, didn't really reflect how capital markets work, let alone how super funds themselves work. But all in all, it's been a tremendous achievement. And But as we start to go through this information, us as a research group, and there's other people doing the same thing, we like to think we're doing it better, but there's other people doing the same thing. It's when we get this public conversation about what, what stocks and bonds and properties and private equity deals that super funds are actually involved with, as we get into that conversation, that in itself will be transformational. And that's when we're mm. going to get the really powerful disclosures happening. I think so. And it then we start to shape the conversation in ways that are meaningful to, you know, end members, people like you and me, people like our, like our kids who are uh, now growing their super future. Now, I did promise that we would talk about your future, your super and the performance test, which has uh, been a bit of a third rail for the industry. Um, now, to paraphrase Mark Twain, there's been rumors of ESG's death by the Your Future, Your Super performance test and sort of a consideration that maybe need, that maybe ESG investing needs its own special case scenario uh, for superannuation funds. Uh, I think you and I are in furious agreement on this, Alex, but I'll put it to you. Um, does a performance test need to have a special exemption for people who do ESG? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. It would be an absolute disaster. If that happened, it would set the ESG segment back decades, and I mean mm. decades. And when I heard people starting to say that ESG is so weak, so bad at running money, so incompetent and so useless that and I'm letting you know my opinions here. If, if we're saying that ESG <laughs> investment back, strategies Alex. are so useless that they need special protection, all mm. I can say is... I just thank God that those people saying those things aren't running education systems or aren't running hospitals. Uh, I was outraged. I was really, really furious when I started hearing these sorts of public commentary because Mm. for decades in this industry, we've been working really hard as a group to try and persuade people step by step by painfully small step that investing this way is really smart. You can actually get good investment outcomes over the long run. It's an entirely legitimate way to invest money. And there's nothing silly about it. There's nothing ideological about it. 
and you can trust it in bad times as well as good. And it's just a great smart way to allow your superannuation to be invested. To then come along and say, oh, but when the going gets tough, we are not tough and we don't get going. We need special rules. It's mm. just outrageous. I used to be a school teacher, as I was saying. My partner is a school teacher. I was, mm -hmm. my son's left school now, but I was involved in my the school boards and I was one of these, as an ex-math teacher, I was one of these really painful parents who were trying to hang around school and being helpful. <laughs> um, but I remember being on a, at a school committee when the My Schools website was launched mm. and we're just getting used to that plan. Uh, mm -hmm. And you have, and the reaction of NAPLAN and my schools kind of reminds me of the performance test. In fact, I actually tell people that the performance test is like NAPLAN for super funds. And the issue <laughs> is not so much what the test is, because you'll never have a perfect test. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to put a lot of information to one particular number. And by definition, mm -hmm. it's going to be flawed and not perfect. However, it's a start. And what's really fascinating, like with NAPLAN, is that when you get your performance test result, when you get your NAPLAN result, it's the, the, what happens next is the, is the important thing. What do you start to talk about? I think on that note, we'll, we'll finish this one off, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us on The Greener Way. Alex Dunnan, Director of Research here at Rainmaker Information. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.